After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined by Keegan Lowe today to discuss the Marlins system. Keegan, you took over writing the Marlins for us last year. Mm-hmm. When you took it over at first, they had one of the worst farm systems in baseball. Then they started their massive sell-off, trading Giancarlo Stanton, Christian Yelich, Marcelo Zuna. Obviously did not make the big league team better, uh, but provided a lot more talent for the farm system, a lot more interesting guys for you to write about. Uh, we moved into 2018 now, and they've added even some more guys. Uh, Victor Victor Mesa, the big Cuban signing. Uh, they had a, a couple of high draft picks this year as well. Um, overall, when you just look at kind of the Marlins, look, we know where the big league team is. They're at the beginning of a rebuild. They finished last in the NL East this year. They're probably going to finish last in the NL East again next year with or without JT Real Muto. But at the same time, they're going to be in last place, and at least there's a little more optimism for the future, at least it seems like on paper. Just what's your kind of overall take on, on where the fish stand right now? Yeah, when I, I would say when I took over this list, like you said, last September, October, I think it was kind of the running joke in the office that you know the Marlins had the 30th out of 30 farm systems and there was just no real hope for that franchise. I mean, yeah, they had three really good outfielders, but they weren't even winning with those guys. And so it, it seems like everyone in the office was in agreement, okay, it's time to blow this up. Um, and, and you can debate about the individual trades if you want. I know there's a lot of people out there that think they didn't get enough for those guys. Um, but at least they're, you know, they're on the rise. The, the farm system is, I think, we, we had them right, right around 20th-ish, um, which is a, a major improvement from 30. Um, like you said, I think the Victor Victor Mesa signing was important this offseason. Um, just in case they didn't maybe maximize the value for Yelich or Stanton or whatever, um, you know, being a player on the international market, especially in a, in a, in a market like Miami, that, that's an extra important, I would say. Um, so, yeah, all, all around, I mean, like you said, yeah, they're probably going to finish last in the NL East again next year, just looking at what the Mets and Phillies and Nationals and Braves are doing this offseason. Um, but they have a top five pick upcoming in June, maybe have a top five pick in 2020 as well. I mean, I don't think this is going to be a quick rebuild. I don't think you're looking at a team that's going to be fighting for the NL pennant in 2020 either. But, I mean, that, that's what's going to happen when you have a, the 30th farm system in baseball and you're not winning with, with the guys, you know, with, with a 2017 MVP and a 2018 MVP when you're not winning with those guys. And that, that's what's going to happen, I guess. Yeah, the Marlins have the longest streak of losing seasons in Major League Baseball right now. Their last winning season came in 09, so this was their ninth consecutive losing season. At the same time, I did feel like, you know, I went out and saw the Marlins a little bit last year. There are some young guys you can work with. Brian Anderson had a really good rookie season. Uh, JT Real Muto, again, we'll see how much longer he's a Marlin, but he's still one of the premier catchers in baseball. We saw you know, a couple of other guys get their first taste this year. A couple pitchers uh, in short stints looked interesting. In terms of what's in the farm system, a lot of these guys, it, it, it's, there's some guys who could help next year. There's some guys who could help two, three years from now. 
We saw Lewis Brinson ascend last year. Um, obviously, it was a disappointing season, but he was there. He can build off of that. You have Sandy Alcantara. He came up a little bit last year as well. But Alcantara, Monte Harrison, Nick Niter, all of a sudden, a couple of these guys are, are closer. You mentioned this is not going to be a quick rebuild. When realistically do you think the Marlins could, at least in theory, end this stretch of the longest consecutive losing uh, season streak in baseball? I mean, that's tough, I think, because you have so many guys like Alcantara who could be a, a number two starter if everything starts click for him, or he could be a eighth or ninth inning reliever, you know, if, if it doesn't click. So, it, and Monty Harrison is another example. He struck out 37% of the time in AA this year. He kind of reduced his leg kick, I guess, in the, in the fall league. Now it's more of a toe taps. And so if he comes out in AAA in 2019 and strikes out less, then he has potential to be a 30-30 guy in the big leagues. Or... He could never make it because he doesn't make enough contact. You know, so they have a lot of guys, I would say, with and Victor Victor, I think you can put in there just because we haven't seen him in the States yet. Just a wide variance of he could be really, really good or he could never impact this team. And, and I guess that's the case with a lot of farm systems, but it just feels like the Marlins, especially at the top, have a lot of guys that have just a wide range of outcomes. Um, but I, I think it's interesting you brought up Brian Anderson. I mean, that's the kind of guy that had a phenomenal rookie year. I mean, if it wasn't for the Acuna and Soto kind of dominating the National League and the National League East, I think Brian Anderson would have got a lot more publicity even being on a bad team. But I think he proved that he could be either an everyday right fielder or third baseman, which is at this time last year, I don't know if we would have said that about Brian Anderson. So that's encouraging. Um, Lewis Brinson, that's going to be someone with Monty Harrison. He's going to have to figure out how to make more contact. I mean, if when that trade happened last year, everyone was excited that they got Lewis Brinson. Twelve months later, it's like, oh, Lewis Brinson's a bust. So, I mean, I think that's when, if, if he can figure it out at the plate along with Harrison, I think that's someone that could speed up your rebuild by two years. So maybe in 2021, you're looking at, man, we have a really good outfield with Brinson, Harrison, maybe Victor Victor's up by that point, and Brian Anderson goes back to third. You have Eason Diaz, who's in my top ten. Um, he, he, maybe he's the second baseman of the future. I mean, so you have some pieces there. Guy like Alcantara comes up in, in, in the front of the rotation, but it's just I feel like there's a wide range of outcomes that we still don't. All of these guys still have pretty major question marks, even if the talent is obvious. I think there's some some major question marks that will kind of depend: is this going to be a 2021 thing, or is this something that might even push farther? So, Victor Victor Mesa, big big high profile signing coming over from Cuba. A little bit of a mystery man, just because the very nature of Cuban baseball and how it's not very visible. What are the reports you got on him and, and the type of player he can be if everything goes right? Yeah, so actually before I even started talking um, to scouts and, and some of the people at the Marlins, I, I just asked Ben Badler, our international guru here at Baseball America, who obviously knows him well, um, and, and Ben said, said pretty much nothing but great things about Victor. Um, could be a plus defender in center field, plus arm, um, plus speed. I mean, the, their potential is there for five-plus tools. Like, you, you can dream on the tool. I mean, he, he's 22 coming over from Cuba, but there's potential to dream on all five of his tools. Um, I would say it's kind of a wait and see with Victor Victor. He's probably 22 years old. Like I said, he's probably going to start in high A um, in Jupiter. His brother, Victor Mesa Jr., who they also signed, who's is not as big as a prospect, but he's only 17. Um, he'll probably start an extended spring training, excuse me, which is also in Jupiter. So they'll be close together if he starts in Jupiter. Um, I could see Victor Victor making it to double A pretty easily um, by the end of 2018. So I think this this first year is a just a kind of a will be a true test for Victor Victor and just coming over to the United States and trying to uh, acclimate there. I mean, I've heard a lot of Victor Robles comps and he's obviously top five, top 10 prospect in the game right now. So I think that's the hope that he 
he gets his feet wet this year in 2018, and maybe by 2019 you're talking about, okay, he could come up in Miami soon. I mean, I don't think this is a guy that will have to stay in the minors long. You know, I don't think this is a two- or three-year thing. I think it's maybe high A, double A this year, maybe triple A in 2019, and then, I mean, 2020, and then you're hoping he's in Miami by the end of 2020. I think that's kind of the, the timeline if all goes well. Um, but, yeah, I think he's a guy you can dream on. More of a top-of-the-order hitter, probably a number two hitter in the future, I would say. Can steal some bases. Um, the power is his weakest tool as of now, I would say, maybe fringe average right now. But there are some people that think he could be an above average once he comes comes over to the States and kind of gets used to playing in, in the majors. Um, yeah, so, so we put him as the number one prospect. Um, there was a little bit of debate, but, but not much, I wouldn't say. I, I feel like um, we were pretty certain he was going to be our number one prospect from the moment he signed. Um, and so, yeah, I think obviously he hasn't played in a Marlins uniform yet, so it's just going to be kind of see how he does in spring training. He got a he got an invite to Major League Spring Training, so he'll be there for a little bit and then go high A, double A, and just kind of see how he performs, see how he kind of gets used to these states. Yeah, you know, he was a guy that came over, uh, and there was a chance to see a flash of him in the World Baseball Classic, mm -hmm. except they didn't really play him because at yeah. the time he was 20 years old and Cuba didn't make it very far. So I know that was one of the disappointments, uh, him, A, not getting playing time, and B, uh, not getting a chance to showcase his skills. But... I would imagine he'll be one of the more watched prospects uh, in spring training this year to, to see what he looks like. You mentioned there was a little bit of debate between him and, and number two, Sandy Alcantara. Uh, Alcantara uh, had made his major league debut with the Cardinals the year before, came over in the Marcelo Zuna trade, uh, made six starts and, and showed, I mean, the premium stuff that's made him a top prospect. Uh, you know, six starts, 3-4-4 ERA, less than a hit in inning. Uh, definitely hard to square up. But he's always been a little wild, yeah. and we saw nearly as many walks as strikeouts. Uh, when I did the Pacific Coast League top 20, there was you know a lot of talk about the improvement he made. Uh, you know he had cut his walk rate nearly two percent in the minors. Uh, they talked about his changeup, you know, making you know some strides forward. Uh, his short slider kind of becoming an effective fourth pitch. So it seemed like there was progress. Um, overall, what is the sense you got on Sandy Alcantar? And you mentioned that huge range of outcomes just because there's so much explosive stuff and so many control questions. How much more confidence is there, if any, that he, he can stick as a starter now compared to maybe a year ago? So I think it, I'm looking at my notes now, and my first line on Alcantara is, it's wow stuff. And that's, that's a quote I got from someone talking about Alcantara. And, and you're, you're right, he has all the stuff to be, I, I think, in front of the line, at least the number two, number three in, in the majors. Um, the control just isn't quite there, but it's not necessarily anything you know mechanical that that he does it's more just he, he's kind of a tall lanky guy and it's hard for those guys especially when they're young to get in sync especially when you're throwing that hard and kind of have that much explosive just breaking uh, breaking stuff so I, I think you can't I you they have to be more confident than they were 12 months ago just because he did have six starts in the majors they were decent starts I mean you know he didn't come up there and look like he just didn't know what he was doing and even before that he got some time with the Cardinals in the bullpen so, so he's kind of been around the majors um He'll graduate from this list, I would guess, by April 15th of next year, you know, once he goes through the, the rotation twice. Seven and two-thirds innings short of graduation. Yeah, so yeah, so he could, uh, I guess, graduate with that first start if he, if he throws well. Um, so he, I think, especially when a team like the Marlins, who's, let's be honest, is probably not going to be competing for a playoff spot, at least this year, I think he's a guy that you go out and you give him 30, if he stays healthy, you give him 30 starts and just kind of let him see what happens. There's no real downside to letting him start next year you know just give him all the innings he can um it's just the command and the consistency i mean if he has the four pitches needed and the fastball velocity needed to be highly successful in the majors um it's just can he control and if not i, I think there's a safe 
I guess he does have a wide range of outcomes, but I also think there's a safe floor there for him. Whereas you put him in the eighth or ninth inning, I think he's going to be successful. I mean, he just has too much stuff to not be, I would say. Um, and we've seen that just in his flashes in the in the majors so far. So I don't know. I, I would say let, let him start 30 games, and I feel confident that the Marlins will do that. And I, I have a hard time seeing him not being in the rotation for the next years to come. But, but even worst case, I think he's a, a very effective and very valuable piece out of the bullpen. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like those were the pretty safe top two. Both those guys will most likely be in the top 100 uh, when the 2019 top 100 comes out. Monty Harrison and Nick Neidert, numbers three and four, two guys who have appeared in the top 100 at various times in the past. What, for you, put Harrison over Neidert? Because I think, in one sense, you could look on paper and say, you know, Neidert had a better year at the same level as a pitcher than Harrison did as a hitter. Um, but at the same time, there is some real, real potential with Harrison that, that he's shown. Uh, we've seen it here, and, and there's no question that it's in there. What went into that debate between 3-4, and, and how close was it with those two? So for me personally, I think Harrison was probably the hardest person to rank on this list. I think you can find people around the Marlins that think he is the most talented prospect they have. And you can make an argument that he's their number one prospect just based on pure talent, um, pure raw talent. But like you said, the problem with Harrison is you look at his performance and it's just not there. Especially, He had a great year in 2017 in the, with the Brewers in high class A. Got traded, obviously, in the Yelich trade in the offseason, went to double-A, and like we said earlier, just, just couldn't make contact. And I know he was still productive in, in, with, without making contact, you know, which is a weird thing to say. It's like if, when he hit the ball, he hit it as hard as any Marlins prospect they have. You know, I mean, he was still productive with just the strikeout rate was just alarming. Um, and so he was a guy that I think if you would pull 20 people around the Marlins organizations, you would have had some that put him as their number one prospect and some that had him lower. Um, and then with Neidert, he's a guy that I feel confident is going to hit his ceiling. Now, his ceiling might not be higher than a, a number three at best, maybe a number four, Probably five. more four, five. Yeah, exactly. So, but it's, he's, he's kind of like the, the anti-Monty Harrison. You, like, you know Nick Neidert is going to get there, but you also know that his ceiling is nowhere near as high as Harrison. There's obviously outfielder, right-handed pitchers, so different ceilings. But So for me, it was just let's bank on the upside of Harrison. We know Neidert. He, he kind of is what he is. Um, really good year at AA. He was the Marlins organiz- uh, Pitcher of the Year in the minors. And I think in 2017 when he was with the Mariners, he was the California League Pitcher of the Year, if I remember correctly. So he's stacking he years um, of just being very productive, and I would expect him to be very productive in AAA this year. And then I would assume we'll see him in Miami maybe August, September, if he, uh, if he pitches well in AAA. But for me, I just trusted Harrison's – maybe not tr- trusted probably not the right word. I just went with Harrison's upside – um, as number three. Those I thought to me were a clear top four if you want to break it into maybe a tier one. I thought those four were, when I first started my mom's list, started talking to some people, I said, okay, these are my top four guys. Now, how do I want to rank them? Um, ultimately, like I said, I just went with Harrison's upside. But if five years from now we looked at this list and you were like, who's Monty Harrison? And wow, McKnight, it's a really good, you know, solid start in the majors. I wouldn't be surprised by that at all either. Um, just for right now, I guess I'll just give Harrison the benefit of the doubt that he can kind of simplify that toe tap and improve his strikeout rate in AAA because all the, the raw tools are there for him to be uh, a big-time major league outfielder. And in your discussions with Marlins officials, you had mentioned that you know they talked about he, he's aware of it. You know, Monty Harrison's a high-makeup guy, great kid who, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but he went to them and said, okay, 
how do I fix this? And they implemented some changes uh, for the fall league. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Part of my reason for going with number three is because people around the Marlins seemed very confident that he could figure it out because he wanted to figure it out more than they wanted him to figure it out. You know, he, he knew that a 37% strikeout rate was unacceptable and he was never going to get where he wanted to be with that strikeout rate. Now, I don't think he's ever going to be a guy that, I mean, his strikeout rate is probably always going to be 20, 25, maybe 30, but it was just getting it down to where it's acceptable rather than outlandish, you know, but, but he wants to do that. So he, like I said, last year he had the big high leg kick. This year you, you can go look up video in the Arizona Fall League. It's, it's a much more simple toe tap. Um, his Fall League numbers were okay. The power numbers weren't there, which is concerning. Anytime you get rid of, you know, that load, you, you worry he's going to lose some of that power, but he was still hitting the ball hard um, from, from all reports I received. So yeah, I mean, high makeup guy, like you said, and I just have confidence that, that he'll figure it out, at least to some extent. Like I said, maybe never going to be a guy that strikes out 15% of the time, but um, he can figure it out just enough so where his power and speed and defensive ability out the outfield playing either center or right just can be an asset to, to the Marlins. Absolutely. You mentioned these were the top four. Uh, number five, Connor Scott, their first-round pick this year. Uh, the Marlins moved all their, their top high school draft picks this year very aggressively, putting them all up to low A Greensboro, uh, Scott included. I got a few looks at him. Uh, just what were the overall reports? A again, a guy in his first draft year, you, you never want to go too crazy on that, especially when they're moved as aggressively as, as Scott was. But just what was the overall sense on, on you know, the first impressions that he made? Yeah, with Scott, it was tough because even our draft reports, even before he was drafted 13th by the Marlins, it was he's just kind of a raw collection of tools right now. Very toolsy, but still pretty well, obviously, as a high school outfielder. Um, and then, obviously, drafted by the Marlins and pushed to Greensboro, low Class A. It's not like he was killing it in the GCL. Exactly, and and so and they pushed Connor Scott, Will Banfield, and Osiris Johnson. I mean, the Marlins were very just kind of out in the open with their approach that, look, these three guys are going to be in low Class A in 2019, so let's just put them there for a few weeks at the end of the season in 2018 just to give them a little taste. Maybe it helps them in 2019. So with Scott and, and those other two guys, I just had to kind of – I felt like I just had to kind of ignore the numbers to, to a certain degree because, like you said, with, with first-year guys coming on the draft, it's always kind of weird anyway of, of how much stock if, – if he hits 400, if he hits 100, how much stock do you put in those? I mean, it's a small sample size, and there's so much, I can imagine, that goes into getting drafted in June, signing for a life-changing amount of money, and then you're playing professional baseball a month later and, you know, a couple months ago you were in high school. So that, that's very weird to me, but from all accounts, he handled – the promotion and the lack of results with the promotion well. And I think that's all they wanted to see. Just get some at-bats up there. This is what it's like to be a professional. These are the bus rides, et cetera. And this is what it's going to be like for you all next year. So just get ready for it. I mean, I think he's still, he's still that plus runner with the potential to play center field. I mean, he's six foot four. might have to move to a corner eventually as he fills out. But I think that's natural for any 18, 19-year-old kid. Um, I remember the comp throughout the, the draft process, and they went to the same high school as Kyle Tucker, the, the Astros prospect. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I think he's just kind of a, a slow burn, I would say, for right now. I mean, it, it's still, he's still very raw. Um, I would just kind of see – I'm very interested to see how promoting those guys to low A in at the end of 2018 helps, if at all, those guys in 2019. Because um, I think it was kind of an experiment. I mean – Pushing three high schoolers to, to low class A in their draft year is not common. I don't know if it's ever been done before with, with three guys in it, the same it, draft. No, it's something that happens, you know, happened like I think five or six times the entire previous decade. Exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, the Marlins were very, look, we're going to do it differently and we're going to see if this works. Um, 
so I think it'll be interesting. I mean, how do they handle that failure, so to speak? I mean, like you said, Connor Scott's weren't, numbers weren't great in the GCL. They were a little bit worse in low class A. I mean, ex like I said, extremely small sample size. It's not taking too much, if anything, from those numbers. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see to kind of follow all three of those guys and see how they handle it um, and, and handle low class A in 2019. With Scott, right behind him, you had two you know, big right-handers who uh, can throw a baseball very, very hard. <laughs> Jorge Guzman, Edward Cabrera. Was there much of a debate with those guys 5-6? Was Scott clearly ahead of them? How did that all shake out? Um, there, there was some debate there. I mean, I would say between Connor Scott at 5, Jorge Guzman 6, Edward Cabrera 7, and Isan Diaz at 8. Um, I felt confident that those were going to be kind of 5-8 through eight as well. Um, now, what order you wanted to put them in, I don't know. I, I would say I didn't put Connor Scott at 5. I felt pretty safe, and just because... I was kind of ignoring the numbers, so there was really, I just had to go off the reports, and by all accounts, I mean, obviously, they drafted him three months ago, so no one around the Marlins was going to tell me, yeah, you know, this Connor Scott guy, big bust. So um, I, I feel confident he was going to be five. I, I think it's, it's fitting that you bring up Guzman and Cabrera kind of in the same breath because they're very similar. I mean, high-octane fastballs. Guzman throws a little bit harder. Even though Cabrera's younger, he might have a little bit better field of pitch right now, um, but they both struggle with their command at time. They both have reliever risk, I'd say. Um, so they're kind of guys that I kind of view neck and neck. You know, if you wanted to switch those and put Cabrera six, Guzman seven, I would have no complaints. And actually, I think there's a good amount of people that you would say they would have Cabrera over Guzman. Um, so, so yeah, those two, I feel, were close. And then Isan Diaz is a guy who, when I was doing, you know, we do our Marlins chats or, you know, your team's chats when the top 10's released, he's probably the one prospect in the top 10 I got the most questions about asking why he wasn't higher. Um, so so I, I think there's even a case that you could have Diaz a little probably safer than Guzman or Cabrera, but maybe not as high of a ceiling. Um, so, so those four, yeah, like you said, I, I think all those are close. Um, but yeah, that's just kind of how the, the, the way it felt. So with Isan Diaz, it's interesting to me, you got the question about why he's not higher. Mm -hmm. um, I saw a bunch of him at Carolina in 2017, and to be honest, it was, uh, he was a fine player. He was not a stud. Um, you know, the numbers were not very good. He hit 222 with uh, a below 400 slug, but, you know, you saw some athleticism, you saw the skills, you saw some hard contacts. He had a little bit of hand injury, but even taking that into account, it's like, yeah, I mean, this is a good player. I can see why you'd go get him, but he's not a cornerstone. Um, you know, this year, again, double A at Jacksonville, it was, it was fine, wasn't great. I, I made some calls on him uh, for the PCL top 20 list, and again, it was, you know, he's a young guy, there's talent there, but it's, it's no one has ever seen this guy as a, I shouldn't say no one has ever. For the last two years, it's been very, very clear to anyone watching him that, like, he's got a chance to be a fine player, and maybe he is the most everyday second baseman, but, but not a stud. Um, was that the kind of feedback you were getting as well? Yeah, I would say the, the people I talked to were pretty high on him. They, they thought there was maybe some... Internally or externally as well? I, I would say internally, pretty high on him. Um, thought there was maybe some unluckiness that, that went into some of his numbers this year, still hitting the ball hard. Um, I, I think they really like what he brings defensively as a potential... I don't know if you want to say plus defensive second baseman, but at least an above average yeah, I can see defensive that. second baseman, if not plus. Um, I, I think there is confidence that he will be the Marlins every day second baseman. Now in five years, will he still be the second baseman? Who knows? But if not by the end of this year, by the start of 2020, is Isan Diaz probably going to be the everyday second baseman? And given every chance to fail out of that role, I would say yeah. Um, 
has some power potential there that you could, which is, as we know, very important in the majors this um, around this time. I, I think he could be a 20-homer guy. I mean, his minor league numbers, he's never got there in the minors. Um, oh, he, he actually, 20 homers in 2016, excuse me. So I, I think he's right there in the majors, and I think he could be a 20, 25-homer guy um, if it all comes together for him. The hit tool is a little concerning. He's never been a high-average guy. Um, but if he's giving you more power than you know your average second baseman, maybe he makes up for it in that. And, and then, like I said, if he's giving you plus defense, I mean, I think there's an avenue there where he's a like he's never going to be the best player on a, on a championship team. But he also might not be you know your your weakest link on a team that's in the playoffs. He's just a solid all around player. I would say is two thirty five. 18 to 20 home runs, really good defense. Is that a fair range? You think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if you're the Marlins, you're probably hoping for like 250, 260. But you know, I, I think if you can get somewhere in that range with 20 home runs and really good defense at second, and every, high, another high makeup guy that really like his makeup, um, will give you a little bit on the bases. He'll steal some bases every now and again. Um, maybe get you 10, 15 stolen bases to go with the 20 homers. I mean, I, I think that, that's a solid major league player yeah. if he gets there. I think he's going to need some his. Numbers in the PCL weren't great at the end of 2018, um, so I would imagine he'll get some more time. Obviously, the Marlins have Starlin Castro for another year, um, assuming he's not traded between now and then. Maybe he's a deadline guy, I don't know. Um, but I would imagine they give him some more time, at least half a season in AAA, if not the whole season. And then you're looking, this time next year, we're talking to Easton Diaz is probably going into 2020 as their everyday second baseman, as the, as the farm system stands now. Two guys who finished just outside the top 10 are the two lefties they've take, they took in the first round two years in a row, Trevor Rogers, Braxton Garrett. Trevor Rogers really fascinated me. I went out and saw one of his starts in Greensboro, and you saw the flashes. You know, he had a second inning where it was like, yeah, that's an absolute, you know, he wasn't taking in the top 10, but like that's a top 10 caliber, you know, arm. And then the next inning you saw, you know, what, what I noticed was as soon as runners got on base, he kind of he kind of fell apart a little bit. Um, but that's just maturity, that's time, you know, played high school ball in New Mexico, it wasn't like he was facing the best competition. Um, but you saw the flashes, the overall numbers weren't very good. What kind of reports are you getting on him? Because I, I think, you know, when I think of all the guys I saw this year, because sometimes you see guys who have great numbers, but you watch them and it's just like, they're really not that good. And mm -hmm. there's other guys you see where the numbers aren't great, but you're watching was like, there's really something here. And, and I think of all the guys I saw coast to coast this year, uh, Trevor Rogers is the guy who stands out in my mind, at least as the guy, you know, the, the top of the, the numbers aren't good, but there's something there kind of guy. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the biggest thing with him this year was he got on the mound. You know, he had he'd never really pitched before. He finally got on the mound. Um, he's a six foot six lefty with, a kind of smooth, clean delivery and gets up to 96. I mean, just that alone, is, there's a lot to like there. Um, the off-speed stuff, and I think, to me, this was expected. The off-speed stuff was just inconsistent, and I think that's kind of went back. If it was on in the second inning or, or whatever, he would look great, and if he, at times he, he just had no idea where it was going or didn't have a feel for it just at all, and it was like, okay, well, I just have to throw fastballs because that's the only thing I can throw right now, and that's why I think the numbers didn't look as good, maybe. Um, so... I think it's just a matter of just continuing to get on the mound. I think if you were going to put a guy who was outside, and this is kind of cheating because, spoiler alert, but Trevor Rogers was number 11. So if there was a guy that was going to move back into the top 10 and maybe even to the top five after this year, I think Trevor Rogers is candidate A because he just needs more time. And you can kind of just tell from all the reports I've gotten that the stuff is there. He just needs to pitch more because – 
you know, like you said, the competition in New Mexico is not great. He could probably just blow by mid-90s fastball against a bunch of those guys and then didn't pitch in his draft year and got a late start this year. And so he's just kind of always been behind. Um, so if he can just – and he's healthy. So if he can just catch up, um, probably move to high Class A in 2019, um, just kind of iron out some of the kinks with his off-speed – I would, would go because everything is there. He has all the, the tools, I guess, in the toolbox that you would want. Um, and I, I think he still has that potential of a first round pick. Uh, it's, it's just a matter of getting, getting more time on the mound. Yeah, and you're right. I, I think, too, I, I, mean, I saw him, you know, unleash some pretty filthy curveballs. And when I saw, you know, the, the walks and whatnot, it wasn't like he was missing by a mile. It's, it was around the strike zone. You mentioned that clean delivery, clean arm. You're right. Uh, you mentioned limited amount of time on the mound and you I go and look at his splits now and you see runner on first 318 opponent average runners on first and third 364 runner at second 310 runners at second and third 429 like the runners on thing and it was really visible the game I Mm -hmm. saw and that's something that again I think is just time maturity and and getting more reps on the mound yeah I I would agree with that and then I think you can kind of say the same with Braxton Garrett obviously a little bit different because uh, Garrett missed all of 2018 with Tommy John surgery, but but it's kind of the same thing. A highly regarded first-round pick, a big lefty who has good stuff. Um, every everyone I would say was pretty high on both of them coming into the draft. You know, whether you thought they were a top five, top ten first-round pick, whatever. I think the consensus was they were big-time arms coming out of high school. Um, and then Garrett just hasn't been healthy. Didn't really pitch much um, before he had Tommy John. Got back on the mound a little bit in instructs this year and should be ready to go for spring training. But just another guy that. If it all comes together and all the pre-draft hype was real and he stays healthy and he gets on the mound, then those are two guys that are kind of like ace in the holes for the Marlins, which is weird to say because they were just drafted a year or two ago. But guys that I think some people have written off, I mean, they're outside of our top ten. But with good 2019s, they're easily, they have the talent. They have as much talent as anyone in this system. You know, I mean, you, you could put them up there with the Guzmans and the Cabreros that are six and seven, um, especially coming from the left-hand side. It's just they haven't been on the mound. And if, in Rogers' case, when he was on the mound, he was expectedly inconsistent. And Garrett just, with the Tommy John, you never know how he's going to come back. So, yeah, those guys, I've, if you've noticed, every list I've done, I've kept them pretty much side by side. Um, Rogers just ahead of Garrett for me just because I know he's healthy and he's on the mound at least, which gives me a little more confidence. But um, th- those are two guys that I've kind of kept really close together. Um, and, and I would expect people kind of view them in the same light as well as, as kind of similar, similar profiles and guys that – could easily move top five, top ten if they just show um, they they just show they can stay healthy and on the mound in 2019. You mentioned all the trades they've made, and obviously there's the headliner guys, but there's always those third and fourth pieces who have a chance to you know surprise some people. Look down the list a little bit. Some of those guys: Jordan Yamamoto, Zach Gallen, Robert Duggar. Uh, a lot of pitchers. Uh, they picked up Bryson Brigman at the deadline this year, right as he was starting to impress some people in the Mariners system. Uh, any of these guys really stick out for you and in, in your calls with evaluators is, you know, hey, they might have gotten something here beyond just the headliners in some of these trades? Yeah, I think the big one for me is Jordan Yamamoto. Um, pitched well in the fall league. Um, a guy, they just really like his just kind of demeanor and, and makeup, I guess, if you want to call it that, and, and just all around stuff. Now, maybe he's not probably going to be, you know, a number two or number three starter in the big leagues, more of a four or five, maybe more of that Nider, you know, like we talked about Nick Nider. Um, but a guy that should reach that potential. You know, they, they just really, obviously not overpowering, more like low 90s kind of guy. Um, but good good feel for a changeup and has shown he can navigate through a lineup multiple times. I mean, I, I think the chances of him being a, a quality starting pitcher are, are pretty high. 
Um, so, so he's a guy, he, he was kind of in that, in that teens range, I would say. Um, but, but yeah, he, he would be the one. I mean, Zach Gallen is another one. He pitched well um, for them in AAA this year. Um, an, another guy that's lower ceiling, um, but, but the tools are there for him to be a number four or five, maybe a mid-relief guy if it all goes, you know, worst case, I, I think. Um, but he's a guy that's right there knocking on the door if they need another starter. Um, so those two, I know Bryson Brigman went, um, went to the fall league this year, pitched well, I mean, and played well. Um, so yeah, I think those would be three guys of, you know, kind of the third or fourth piece you're talking about. But uh, Jordan Yamamoto would be my one if I had to pick one guy that they traded for last offseason that maybe went under the radar. Um, because especially we've already talked about the other three people in that trade with Brinson, Harrison, and Diaz. And so I think, obviously, Brinson was their number one prospect going into last year. Harrison and Diaz are top eight prospects this year. So I think people probably forget about that fourth piece, especially there was a lot of kind of hate, if you want to call it that, on the Yelich trade as Yelich kind of blew up with Milwaukee. Um, but I think there's still a chance for that trade to be a lot better than people currently. I mean, it, a lot of it's going to ride on Brinson and Harrison. One or both of those guys have to figure it out at the plate. But... I think you could do a lot worse than getting Diaz and Yamamoto as the third and fourth pieces in that trade if one or both of Brenton and Harrison step up and live up to the, the prospect hype that they had. You know, I, I joined a, uh, a Marlins beat writer for an interview earlier this, this uh, offseason. One of the things I said, and this is you know more up my wheelhouse, is looking at the history of trades and how mm-hmm. they work out. The truth is, when you trade star players for prospects, the prospects almost never outdo what that star player does. Yeah. So I feel like if you're a Marlins fan, forget trying to compare these guys to what Christian Yelich exactly. is going to do. Start with the understanding that Christian Yelich is going to outdo all these guys combined. But if that happens and you still get a starting second baseman, one of Diaz and Br- one of Harrison and Brinson, you know, really pops, and a decent arm in Yamamoto, you can still come out of that and say, okay, if you compare it side by side, yeah, Christian Yelich, you know, did more than these guys but you still get three or four usable big league pieces, you can live with that. And I think for me, that's how Marlins fans should try and measure really all these trades, but especially the Christian Yelich trade, because again, what Christian Yelich is going to give the Brewers for his five prime years at the money he's making, I don't think it's not fair to ask Brinson and Harrison and Diaz and Yamamoto to live up to that just because it's going to be darn near impossible. Yeah, and I think that's fine too, because you know the Marlins weren't winning with Yelich. Uh, like... Yelich wasn't winning the MVP if he was in Miami last year. He, they were going to win 70 games, and he wasn't going to, you know, he wasn't going to have that MVP hype that he had this year. So I think, it, yeah, like I agree with you. It's just it's kind of unfair to compare Yelich to these four guys. What you have to hope is that three of these four guys hit for you on the majors, and one of them hits big. And I think you have to hope it's Brinson or Harrison. I'm take your pick. I, I obviously I didn't do as many calls on Brinson this year just because he graduated. Um, but, but the talent is, is there for, I don't know if either of them will ever be MVP candidates like, like Yelich, but like you said, I don't think that's the point at this point. It's just to have guys that will impact your major league team for a long time, and if you have three of those guys, then it might work out better for you in the long run anyway. You know, in, in 2022, maybe it's better that you have Diaz as your second baseman, Brinson as your center fielder, and Yamamoto as your, as your number five starter on a good team you know, than, than just having Yelich in left field. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't um, come as hard at the Marlins for, for that trade in particular. Um, I personally like the four pieces they got for that. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anyone saw Yelich having the year he had and the Brewers having the year they had. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm fine with what they got even 12 months later, kind of looking back in hindsight. 
the Marlins have a lot of guys that are fairly big names, either because they were acquired in blockbuster trades or, in the case of Victor Victor Mesa, a high-profile Cuban signing, or in the case of these lefties, high draft picks. Anyone that you feel like is a really interesting sleeper that maybe doesn't get enough love, whether it's further down on this list or even someone off the list that people should keep an eye on? So one guy that I've heard rave reviews about, and I didn't really know how high to bump him up the list because it's hard because he had Tommy John last year, is Jordan Holloway, a right-hander, high school right-hander out of Colorado in 2014. He was the Marlins' 20th round pick in 2014. Hasn't pitched above low Class A, had Tommy John in either June or July of 2017, didn't pitch until late, late this year, and just kind of some rehab starts, um, instructs. But he has, from all reports, has kind of the stuff that you're looking for, like fastball up to 98, just kind of electric, six foot four, a big kid. Um, they put him, he hadn't pitched above low class A, and they put him on the 40-man roster this offseason just to protect him from the Rule 5 draft. I mean, they, they really like him. Obviously, he's still raw, he's coming off Tommy John, he's still very inexperienced, but if you're just looking at a guy that has all the stuff, um, he's He'll be 22 in spring training, 22 now. Um, he just has all the stuff of a, of a at least a mid-rotation starter. Now, if it ever clicks, who knows, because he's far away. But I think it says a lot that a guy who's coming off Tommy John never pitched above low Class A, and the Marlins put him on the 40-man. It's not like he's dominated the low Class exactly. A Exactly, and it's not even like his numbers are good either. So it's like he has a lot of things going against him, and even with that, the Marlins just kind of trusted their eyes and said, look at his stuff. The stuff is there. Let's put him on the 40-man and let's you know stay with him because I don't know if he would have got picked in the Rule 5 draft or not, but I mean he's at least an interesting candidate. Um, you'd have to ask JJ if, if he's gonna, <laughs> if the Rule 5 expert if he was going to get picked in the draft. But um, I, So that's a guy that he, he was kind of, I think last year he was in my 20s. Um, this year I, I actually moved him up even though he didn't really pitch this year just because the stuff when he pitched um, late in the year and then in instructs, um, the, all the reports were encouraging. So he's a guy that I would just kind of keep an eye on. I wouldn't expect too much from him in 2019, but he's someone I would keep an eye on. Um, I'm trying to think of anyone who else. Robert Duggar had a very good year right-hander. He had a good year this year. Um, he's another guy that maybe a lower ceiling starting pitcher, um, but he's been successful. He's been pretty consistent. He was a college reliever, um, but since he's moved to the moved to, he moved to the starting rotation, I think midway through 2017, and ever since the Mariner system, yeah, yeah, Mariner yeah. system, and they moved him to the rotation. Marlins kept with it, and he's been solid as a starting pitcher. Um, so I think those are two guys for the rotation, maybe in, in a year or two, that you're looking at, and like, hey, these guys were never top ten prospects, but they, they could have an impact at the major league level. Absolutely. To wrap up, Wither Tyler Kolek. Yeah, so I got a, I got a few questions about Tyler Kolek in the chat. Um, unfortunately. I'll go ahead and ruin the prospect handbook. He will not be in the top 30 if you purchase the prospect handbook. So if you're looking for a Tyler Kolek report, you're going to have to get last year's handbook <laughs> out. Because um, unfortunately for Tyler Kolek, not much has changed since last year either. And that's kind of why he's out of the top 30 for the first time in his career. Well, all these other guys have been brought in. All these other guys are performing. Exactly. So, yeah, that's what you're kind of comparing it to, too. Last year we talked about the Marlins had one of the worst um, farm systems in the game and even with Tyler Kolick having the just awful 2018 or 2017 excuse me he was like okay you know what we'll stick him in there stick him in the back he still might be still might be something well Wallen's system has gotten a lot better and Tyler Kolick has gotten the same I guess if you want to say it that way um, and the same is not good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm trying to kind of be nice about it here, but it's just hard. I mean, you can go look at his numbers; they're just not good. Um, and he's kind of dealt with a shoulder 
issue. No one, he, he, no one really knows what's going on. He just hasn't been fully healthy. Um, the stuff has never been near as good as it was coming out of high school when he was the, you know, guy throwing 100 out of high school and, you know, needed to be a top five pick, whatever. Um, so, yeah, he's someone that I don't think anyone will forget Tyler Kolick just because of how hyped he was coming out of the draft and how much hope the Marlins had for him. But someone that I wouldn't expect to make an impact in Miami anytime soon. You know, if you're banking on Tyler Kolick to, to turn around this Marlins rebuild, I, I, I would turn your sights somewhere else, to, to pretty much anywhere else at this point. So It's very, very fair. Well, Keegan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great job, as always, with the Marlins. And uh, now you get, you'll get you get year three of them coming up. Yeah, well, looking forward to it. Maybe next year uh, we'll, we'll talk we'll be talking about a top 10, top 15 system, depending on what happens with Rio Muto and happens with Harrison and these guys. So, yeah, it's exciting to kind of cover a, a farm system that looks to be on the way up, at least. Absolutely. Well, Keegan, it's definitely an interesting system, and we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, everyone, for listening once again. For Keegan Lowe, I'm Kyle Glazer. Talk to you next time. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.